all his movies, the Shia LaBeouf podcast. This is episode 7, Wall Street Money Never Sleeps from 2010. I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I'm Mike Manzi. And this movie, whew, um, hmm, uh, I saw the <laughs> yeah. first one a long, long time ago. I don't remember much of it, aside from the fact that everybody misquotes it. Because you know, I don't think he ever says in the first one, greed is good. What does he say? Like, greed, for lack of a better word, is good? Yeah, all the best lines in movie history are misquoted, so... <laughs> So this one, I was just like, all right, we're going to watch it. Because it was always a movie that like, I felt like I probably should have seen. But man, man, oh man. It's, it, it makes me really appreciate like the Wolf of Wall Street and the Big Short more for like, taking the financials on Wall Street and making them like fun, entertaining movies. This is just like... Whew, it's just, like, boring. Yeah, you know, money never sleeps, but I almost fell asleep about three times during <laughs> this one. <laughs> um, and, yeah, you know, Wolf of Wall Street, The Big Short, much better sequels to Wall Street itself, if you ask me. I mean, just, you know, thematically, stylistically, like, I, this movie actually gave me the excuse to finally watch Wall Street, the first, the supposed classic. And uh, while it is somewhat dated, what I did find quite entertaining about it was the energy behind that movie it really popped it moved and you know like something like wolf of wall street it really felt like it was walking you through this world and i felt like i was immersed and knew what was going on and following along but this one is just like devoid of that spark it doesn't have the same energy and yeah i just didn't enjoy it it's an oliver stone movie which we talked about a lot when we did Cage Club, we did World Trade Center, which is one of three movies he did back to back to back, which is all about sort of New York and post 9-11. There was this movie, there was World Trade Center, and there was W, another movie with Josh Brolin in it, where... Did Josh Brolin play George W. Bush? Played W, yep. He played W. So there's like some internet name for that trilogy of films. But, I mean, Oliver Stone, like, this is the kind of movie where, like, there's literally dominoes on screen as they're describing the domino effect. And, like, I'm just yeah. like, oh, God, come on. Like, the movie yeah. treats you really stupid. I just don't like it. You know, you're right. It feels kind of, like, amateurish, Oliver Stone. Like, there's the dominoes thing. There's the part where there's bubbles, like, floating. And he's like, oh, the bubble, that's going to burst. <laughs> and they're always talking about the bursting bubbles. Like, it's so literal and it knocks you over the head. I kind of was, like, expecting more from Oliver Stone and you know there's lines like the guy literally turns to the camera and is like you're talking about the biggest bailout in American history <laughs> you know you're going to nationalize the banks and it, at this point it just you know seems so obvious and <laughs> it turned me off what I think is kind of funny about this movie and apparently it's the same thing that happened in the first movie is that this movie set two years after like the movie came out in 2010 but it's set in 2008 and the first yeah. one came out, I think, in 87 and was set, like, in 85. Yeah. And so I don't know about that one. You'd be able to tell me better because I don't remember anything really from the first one. The time span, like, the gap in time makes it so that, like, Gordon Gecko can look like this financial genius. Like, he knows exactly what's going to happen and how to turn $100 million into $1.1 billion. And it's just like, oh, it's almost like it was set in the past, not only just, like, to tell a story, like, you know, a fable of the banks crashing, but to show, like, oh, this character that I've created, this Gordon Gecko type, he's infallible. Like, yeah, he'll go to jail for insider trading, but then he'll get out 20 years later or 14 years later and then be able to rebuild this empire from nothing. It's just frustrating that... 
it's not like they're people are trying to like learn in the time. It's just like Gordon Gekko is basically like, I'm from the future. I know exactly yes. what's going to happen. <laughs> Don't worry about anything. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of just what I was going to say back to you. Is like it's the screenwriters are from 2010, so they know everything that happened from 28 onwards, and so now Gordon Gekko has that knowledge as well. It's like he's he can see the future. Yeah, he, he's got like superpowers or something, and I didn't quite put that together until now, but it makes it even less enjoyable for me, because like I really feel like they missed an opportunity for Gordon Gekko to be likable this time around. Like, in the first movie, it's kind of about, like, this very low-level douche played by Charlie Sheen meeting this very high-level douche played by Michael Douglas. At the end of that movie, it's like, Michael Douglas, you never... I never liked him, but at the end, it's like, Charlie Sheen has a bit of a redemption, you know, where it's like, oh, he's not an asshole as much anymore, and he's gonna go on to be, like, okay. But in this, it's like, I don't really feel like they ever make Gordon Gekko likable or want you to be on his side whatsoever and I really feel like that is a missed opportunity like they really shouldn't have made him this guy who can see the future and tell everything that's happened I really feel like they should have made him more downtrodden or down on his luck less able to adapt to the world since he's been in prison you know like not ahead of the game but behind it and there for me would have been more interesting to see this guy pull himself back up because what's weird is that the movie starts out in 2001 and there's like some weird like production thing like that opening scene feels different from the rest of the movie where he's getting out of prison. And apparently that was shot before Oliver Stone came on board. And then he came on board and shot the rest of the movie. So I don't know exactly what happened, but the movie starts in 2001, a month after 9-11, he gets out of jail. And then we flash forward seven years. So I agree with you. Like, if we saw him in those seven years, that would be more interesting than seeing him sort of having his life back together. And, like, it seems like the only thing he's missing, which is sort of, I guess, the point of this movie, is that his daughter's not in his life. And so he wants to get her back. Because she's not in the first movie, right? It's just the, no. his son who kills himself. Yeah in between movies. And even then, he's like this toddler, so he's not exactly a character. It's just someone that Gordon laments about to the Charlie Sheen, just like, I'm a father, I'm a dad, I can be a father figure, and this and that. Now, what's interesting yeah. about this movie, and I'm not sure exactly what happened, but this made the 2009 Blacklist the most popular scripts that weren't made into films, so I wonder hmm. if this was a movie about a banker trying to reconnect with his daughter, and then Oliver Stone came on board and then they adapted it into a Wall Street movie. Mm. Like, I don't yeah. know, like, I didn't I didn't read anything like that. I read that, you know, he came on later, he didn't write the movie. The title was originally Money Never Sleeps, which I guess is also, it's a quote taken from the first one, that Gordon calls somebody really early in the morning, and the guy, I guess, is like, why you call him? He's just like, well, Money Never Sleeps. And so then when Oliver Stone signed on to direct, he added Wall Street 2 to the title, and then he dropped the two because he wanted this to stand on its own, like, so you could watch this movie and enjoy it without having seen the first one. I wonder if this was, like, adapted to be, like, Oliver Stone's like, hey, like, we'll just turn this into a Gordon Gecko thing. Like, it, it almost feels like, in a way, sort of, the big short, like, it, there's almost like a more compelling movie about Shia trying to get this, like, alternative energy company funded. And then, like, it just feels like Gordon Gecko is just, like, pulled out and just, like, stuck in here, sort of. It definitely feels like they took a script and they're like, let's turn this into Wall Street. Because all that Gordon Gecko stuff, really, the movie could do without it. It, it does feel wedged in there. I mean, I was even wondering, is Frank Langella going to be the main character of this until he jumps in front of a subway train? And well, that answers that. My bigger point is that, like, Gecko is barely in this movie for the first, like, hour. Not even in a lot of the rest of the movie. He's mostly in the last 
half hour, yep. I'd say, maybe 20 minutes of this movie is really like the Gordon Gecko show and stuff. So it is mostly that Shia navigating the financial industry trying to get backing for his clean energy project. And that feels much more like the movie here as opposed to all this other you know, Wall Street business because you bring in Michael Douglas and you have the weight of the first movie and then it does feel like you need to see the first movie and like I felt like I felt like I should watch the first one first but I didn't really need to aside from the little Charlie Sheen cameo and the in-joke there I mean there's nothing really going on here that harkens back directly to that first movie enough to say this needs to be Wall Street 2. Yeah because I mean the movie's about Shia, who is a Wall Street broker, I guess? Mm-hmm. We don't really ever see him yeah. doing his job, I don't think. Like, we don't really see people in this movie doing their job at all. Like, we just see people in meetings <laughs> and running around. Like, we don't really see people working, I don't think. I, it was hard for me to figure out what they do, because in the first one, it's very clear. It's very Wolf of Wall Street. You know, he's, uh, he's trying to, like, unload those, like, junk bonds in the beginning, or he's just, uh, you could tell he's a broker. In this one, I almost thought, like, is he working for a hedge fund trying to raise money for certain things? It was very hard to to tell if he was the investor or not. The whole movie is set under the guise that the, the financial collapse is impending. All the bank names have been changed, but it's all based on what really happened. And, you know, banks bailing out other banks and refusing to bail out banks, and like certain guys are based on certain other guys. And, you know, when they have that motorcycle ride, apparently that happened in real life. So this is really sort of, like, ripped from the headlines. You know, like, it's sort of, like, almost like a biopic that just also sort of happens to have Gordon Gecko in it. It's just weird. <laughs> so there's the whole Shia thing, him being this young, I guess, like, we don't really get a sense of, like, whether or not he's, like, good at his job until Frank Langella gives him a check for $1.1 million. That scene feels weird because it almost feels like Frank Langella's just like, I like you, like, here's some money. Like, it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't feel like he's necessarily yeah. earned it. It seems like... He might have earned it, or he's like, it almost feels like he's related to him. Like, they're not related, are they? No. Because Shia kisses him on the head on the way out. Like, I don't know. <laughs> it's just weird. Yeah, Frank Langella is his mentor. Like, Shia was his caddy. He's, he has that little story where he's like, he was 12 years old, and he wouldn't shut up about business, and so he took him under his wing and groomed him. But that moment where he gives him the check for a million dollars and it's his bonus, that's kind of the only way you know Shy is good at his job throughout this entire movie, you know what I mean? Like, throughout the movie, mostly, like, he just, he speaks up and speaks his mind as a, as the character. He, like, interrupts boardroom meetings or walks in on things and, like, because he's so brash, people are like, I like your attitude, like, come work <laughs> for me, you know? Like, you, you are a good worker because, like, you speak up. But those are the only sort of glimpses we get of him being good at what he does, you know, is other people saying, you're good at your job. Because the whole movie, like, what he tries to do work-wise is that he just tries to, there's this one company that's doing some kind of fusion energy thing in California, and the beginning of the movie, he gets a phone call from them saying that, like, they had a breakthrough, they were able to sort of do something bigger than better than they've ever done, more lasers than they've ever done before, (laughs) they're gonna do more lasers even than that next week, but they need another hundred million dollars so they can sort of, like, accelerate the timeline. And he's like, great, like, we'll get you the money, and then the whole movie is him, like, failing to get him the money. Like, you know, it's... It just seems like he's not good at his job because I understand like the whole world is sort of in a way not like directly conspiring against him, but conspiring against him in that like things are collapsing and people are screwing him over and the bank that he's working at it collapses and like they don't there's just no money. It's a lot of things that aren't his fault, but at the end of the day he's just not doing his job basically. <laughs> yeah, and I also feel like he shouldn't be able to 
get taken advantage of as much as he does throughout this movie. Like, I just, he he comes across as someone who's smarter than all that, but everyone's always getting over on him too. You know, like obviously you know Gordon Gecko is gonna get over on him, but the Josh Brolin character comes out of nowhere and is like, "Here's the name of the game, right?" Or like he he's like, "They're not going with the fusion investment." I thought you knew, like all this stuff. I basically screwed you, but we're still friends. And it just seems like his character is off balance at points and not really consistent and stuff. And I think part of the main problem is it's becoming so much more apparent now that I think about it, this whole stuff about how it probably was not a Wall Street movie. Because if you think about how sort of superfluous the Gordon Gecko character is is connected to all of this, it's through Shia's fiance, yep. right? The daughter character. And she's not even in the first half of the movie. She goes on like a business trip, she disappears, she writes for a blog and things like that. And then there's like all these awkward little moments of trying to get her trust to connect back to her father and Shia and then all this stuff out of the blue about some offshore bank account with a hundred million dollars from when she was a kid like all this other plot comes rushing through the door toward the end of this movie and that's pretty much all dealt with after a lot of the Josh Brolin main plot is also wrapped up so it's weird it's almost like the movie stops and then the rest of the movie has to go on to tie up all the Wall Street business well because what's weird and we were sort of I was trying to console you as you got through the movie like over Facebook the movie kind of wraps up it's a main story like an hour and 45 minutes in and then there's just like half an hour and it just seems like in that half an hour Michael Douglas sort of screws over Shia and his daughter and then makes up for it. Like, it's all, like, everything happens so quickly. Like, the whole movie drags and there's nothing really interesting going on. And it's all stuff that we've seen done before, like we're talking about, and seen done better. The Josh Brolin thing, like, he's sort of, he's going to be under investigation now. You know, Frank Langella is dead. It seems like Shia is going to be either, like, working for himself or figuring out something else to do. That's all, like, completed. Like, there's a bow on all that. His girlfriend, Carrie Mulligan, you know, she writes the, the, on her blog. She posts a story about the corruption that leads to Josh Brolin's downfall. That's all handled. That's all done. That's all taken care of. And then, like, oh, we got the whole Gordon Gecko thing, who then, you know, screws over Shia and his daughter for the $100 million that he left her. That whole thing happens. In this last half hour, Shia and Carrie Mulligan sort of break up and then get back together and then have the big... Ba- it's, it's, all, it's all so fast and just, like, tacked on. Well, it's strange because it feels like we missed a movie between Wall Street and Money Never Sleeps. Like, that movie we both kind of want to see of where he gets out of jail, he writes the book, he gets a little bit of fame, and his name comes back into the public spotlight. What's strange about this movie is that, you know, there's about 40 minutes left, and this movie's about two hours, right? So there's 40 minutes left, and Gordon Gecko is in London, and he's lighting a cigar, and he's like, Gordon Gecko's back, baby. I'm back. <laughs> and I'm like, you're back? I was like, I'm ready to go. Mm-hmm. You know, like... This movie needed yeah. to start with the, that moment of he screwed over his daughter and her fiance and he's back and he's in London and he's shifting and wheeling and dealing. And then at the end of that two hours, he shows up on her doorstep in New York City with the $100 million check or whatever. But yeah, it's just crazy. The way that you know he's back, aside from him saying he's back, is that all movie long, he sort of got his like crazy hair. And then as soon as oh, he's yeah. back, he slicks it back. And it's like, it, just like nothing ever changed from 1987. It's just like, oh, okay. <laughs> I guess you just have to look the part. Like, there's like, we don't really know what he's been doing. He wrote a book. I guess he's giving seminars. He's making enough of a living. He's the Wolf of Wall Street model, right? Like, 
they basically used his model, right? When he yeah. got out of prison, he wrote a book. He started doing publicity tours and talking and seminars and teaching people about like how not to get screwed over. <laughs> I was sort of I'm now. I mean, I wasn't thinking when I was watching, but now I'm sort of surprised that we didn't hear him ask like or say to somebody, "Sell me this pen." It's just like okay, like basically <laughs> yes. are Jordan Wolford. like it's just the same guy. You're not as charismatic as Leonardo DiCaprio is, and this movie's not as good as The Wolf of Wall Street is. Yeah, by no means. No, unfortunately. I feel like if it didn't try and wedge all the Wall Street stuff in, it had a chance to be an interesting take on all that Wall Street stuff, like a low-energy, more investigative sort of, you know, how do we raise money during a crisis for the companies to keep our company afloat, something like that. I don't know. Just another thing that sort of keeps it distant from what everyone else is doing, you know? And it seems like this gets pulled into the whole financial crisis thing way too much. We're invested in it, but we also don't really see like any real workings of it. Like we know that their bank is collapsing and then we see the guys go upstairs to sort of, I guess, figure things out. But it feels like they're handling everything with kid gloves. We're sort of at a distance. Like we don't really actually see what's going on. We just see people leaving work. We see Frank Langella kill himself over the grief and over not wanting to deal with everything. We don't actually see the things happening. We just sort of hear about them because Chaya's like constantly watching the news like in his apartment. And so we see him constantly learning or we're learning as he's watching these things unfold on the TV instead of seeing them actually take place where he's at work. Yeah, that's true because we're always sort of following Shia's perspective for the most part so he kind of seems oblivious to all that because his job is pretty much safe for the meantime because, well then again, we don't really know what he does but we know (laughs) that he's not going to get fired. But I did kind of feel the presence of it very much in the background all the time almost to the point of like every scene someone seemed like they were getting fired or every scene there was uh, something on the news about the financial meltdown and something. To me, it felt like it was this thing hanging over the film the whole time. I was just like, turn the TV off and talk to each other and try and work out your problems. So, okay, so this is a movie where we're into the part of his career, and I think we sort of talked about this in the Transformers episode we just did. We're in the part of the career where he's in these major blockbusters. He doesn't really have necessarily the creative freedom that he probably had for these indie films, but at the same time, I think that he's enough of an established actor that he can sort of... like. There's there's one story that I heard that I'm going to say. Like he, he still feels like, I guess, he can sort of have his have his say on things. Huh, because okay. even though we're, we're with Oliver Stone, you know, who's this, you know, maybe he's sort of a hack in this movie or whatever. Not that I can do better. You know, like, I don't want, I don't want to trash talk him because he's, you know, got this amazing reputation. Even though he's made a couple really great films, whatever. But there's this one story that Shia told. They were in the Adirondack shooting and Josh Brolin and him are shooting the bike scene where they go for that ride. Okay. And at one point I say to Josh a line, you should look at yourself in the mirror first and see yourself. It might scare you. I looked at the line for a couple months, Shia said, and thought I'd go to Oliver and say, you look in the mirror and look at yourself, it's sort of repetitive. Why don't we just cut one of those? Why don't I say, look at yourself, it might scare you? Stone looked at him and calmly replied, I like mirror, I wrote Scarface, go fuck yourself. <laughs> Whoa, hostile. And so, I don't know what the tone was, I don't know if that was joking, I don't know what that is, but it tells me a couple different things. Number one, that Shia felt like he had enough clout in the world of Hollywood that he could be like, hey, like I, th- I, I, I just can't get this line, Like I don't think it's working, Like let's talk about it. But at the same time, either you know because it's a big budget movie or just because he's working with this guy who wants to do things his way, it's just like I hear what you're saying but just no we're gonna do it the way I want (laughs) and so like this is a weird kind of part of his career where like he's I can see that this is maybe the kind of experience coupled with three huge Transformers movies in the span of 
five years where he probably doesn't get to do a lot of what he wants to do. He's just like, I need to go do something smaller where, like, I'm able to sort of have more of, like, an input because if this wasn't, like, joking, like, if this was, like, sort of his experience on set, like, that that doesn't sound fun. No, not at all. That makes Oliver Stone sound like, you know, this isn't Terminator, kid. Like, I make real movies or <laughs> something like that or, or just pull in rank. Like, uh, hopefully he just said something like that to get him in character because he was supposed to be pissed at Josh Brolin, so maybe he wanted to get his blood boiling a little bit and it, that's the genius of his direction but who knows for sure the one thing I did think about about why they cast uh, Shia possibly is okay. maybe didn't he have kind of like this bad boyish attitude not attitude but like his public image wasn't exactly squeaky clean at this point he, he had like some kind of um, drunken I don't know if it was a drunken accident but he had like injured his hand on the set of Transformers 2 and he was sort of starting to cause some noise in the community I felt about misbehavior or or something like that. Just this young child star is now matured and might be going out of control. So I, it made me think of like Charlie Sheen at, the, at being cast in the first one and having very much sort of a similar public image known as like this bad boy rock and roll type of actor thing going on. So I almost wondered if they cast Shia to sort of bring that same attention to the part by any means but the problem is none of it really plays off like I don't feel Shia is tough at all in this movie if he's supposed to be that scene with Josh Brolin I mean maybe he needed to go the extra mile to get a performance out of him I, I don't I don't necessarily feel like everybody's brought their A game to this directorially with Oliver Stone um, acting wise with all the actors just a lot of it doesn't I just don't feel any energy behind any of it to be honest with you nobody really feels like they want to necessarily be here if you know if you take my meaning um, I'm not saying they didn't want to be there I'm just saying it comes across like they're all walking through this movie that's what I was trying to sort of gather as we watch it like because I wasn't actively thinking that while watching this but I, I now like it doesn't seem like anybody's having fun i was more conscious of that during transformers 3 where we know that like this is sort of shy as like you know final in the franchise he doesn't want to do anymore but like on the set there i mean there are certain scenes like the smaller scenes where he's with like his mom and dad in that movie where it seems like he's like into it like he seems like there's like there's like a life there and here it's just like nothing about like, maybe that's partially the character just the mentality of like a stockbroker or whatever you know a, a, a trader or whatever but it just feels like he just there's no life in him but there's also like no life in anything like there's Frank Langella who like basically I don't think can act without like giving off something but he's only <laughs> in the movie for like 35 minutes yeah like Carrie Mulligan Carrie Mulligan I realize in this movie like she can do something better than I've seen anybody else do like she has this one face hurt and sad and just angry it's like this whole like everything in this face and, like it might be like the one face she can do but the whole movie she's just sort of like in the dark and then she finds out what's happening and then she's upset and or pouting Gordon Gecko basically has no emotions and then Josh Brolin is like as this big time Wall Street guy he's sort of all business like there's just nobody here with any personality and Shia is like the only character that could sort of be imbued with that and like there's just there's nothing like he's given nothing to work with yeah so it's too bad and especially for Carrie Mulligan she is completely wasted here uh, and it's unfortunate because her character should be one of the most pivotal characters in the film she is Gordon Gecko's daughter and she is barely in this and she matters like nothing when it comes down to it right. I almost feel like Shia shouldn't be in this movie at all that she should have been the main character it had it should have nothing to do with the financial industry and it should just be about Gordon Gecko trying to win his daughter back or something it just seems strange the choices that were made here what's weird about the movie in terms of like 
the the roles or whatever of the actors in the movie is that nothing I read seemed to give any impression that Shia was ever going to be anybody other than Shia. So maybe your theory is true that they wanted to capture sort of the modern day Charlie Sheen and they went with him. But also like at the same time, there's like there's, there's like a shortage of actors his age that really could do something like this. You know, like, I feel like there's not that many guys who at this time were probably, what, like, in their mid-twenties? Like, who hmm. could really sort of pull this off? Like, I feel like there's just, like, a shortage of people who could sort of lead a movie. And I feel like that's, that's yeah. maybe, I mean, I sort of want to think about that more by the time it gets to, like, Indiana Jones, but I feel like he's sort of in that right age where they're like, okay, we need, like, a face for this franchise, and he's not got this, like, charisma, at least not in this, as, like, you know, Harrison Ford in the 70s and 80s, but he's sort of, like, our best bet right now. Right. And so I feel like he's always there. But but there's, like, the other roles. The Carrie Mulligan role almost went to Blake Lively, who we just saw huh. was almost the lead, I think, right in Transformers 3. But the other one, Leah Michelle, she's from Glee. She was originally going to be a rumored to play the Carrie Mulligan part. And then the other role that I saw that was up for sort of debate, Oliver Stone really wanted Javier Bardem huh. as the Josh Brolin role. That would have been great. But he he was making, I think, Beautiful at the time, and okay. so they couldn't get him, so they thought about Edward Norton, Martin Henderson, Simon Baker, Mark Wahlberg, Aaron Eckhart, <laughs> and our boy James Franco. Um, oh. Eventually, Josh Brolin was cast. Do you think uh, Zeph could have played this if Zephron? I, mean, I was thinking about that. I was thinking about that during this, big time. The only other guy name I came up with was Gosling. I mean, he probably could have pulled this off, you know, with uh, two arms behind, tied behind his back, you know, with his foot chopped off. <laughs> the guy's great. Oh, I don't think I realized that Zac Efron was only a gear younger than Shia. Shia is born in 86. And Zeph was born in 87, so they're about the same age. I think it's much more of a Zeph vehicle, to be honest with you. It just yeah. feels more his sensibilities for some reason. I mean, maybe that's just because we've seen Shia stretch so much more than this. It just feels like he's not reaching for anything. And it just feels like he's kind of wasted like everyone else. I don't know. What is weird about the movie is that there's two actresses in this movie that I really like that are basically in the background and nothing more. There's Vanessa Ferlito, who played Butterfly in Death Proof, and who was also in Graceland, which was an okay TV show on USA. She is one of Shia's co-workers, but she's given, like, absolutely nothing to do. She's just sort of, like, there because they need, like, a woman... Sort of, I guess, mm-hmm. right? And there's yeah. Natalie Morales, who's really, really funny, mm-hmm. and she was on The Grinder, and she was in Parks and Rec, and she was in Trophy Wife, and she's in, I think, in one scene, and she's just like, yeah. just like a business lady giving a presentation. I'm like, why are you casting these people <laughs> and giving them nothing? And then there's Susan Sarandon, who's in this movie. Oh yeah, her only role in this movie is to ask Shia for money because like she wants to become a real estate agent, <laughs> or she's like struggling as a real estate agent. I don't know what her arc is. I was gonna say it's like a sexist thing, but like even the men, like the men in this movie are given nothing to do too. So I don't. It's just it's just a bad script. Yeah, but during the Susan Sarandon scenes, I kept thinking of how great they bounced off each other in the company you keep during the interrogation slash interview sequence that yeah. they had together in prison. And I'm like, where is that going to come from? Because I just don't feel like they're related at all here. They're supposed to be mother and son. And she's bouncing off the walls, and he looks like he's on lewds or something. I mean, we all know from Wolf of Wall Street how much, <laughs> you know, brokers love their lewds. So who they knows do love the lewds. Yeah. The lemons. The lemons, but uh, yeah, it was just—it was a shock to be like, "Oh, here comes Susan Sarandon." Oh, 
oh man, oh no, like <laughs> what happened? Everyone, no one just, no one really seems to be on the same page. Also in this movie, with almost nothing to do, is Eli Wallach from The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Oh my gosh, yeah, I knew I knew him from somewhere, yeah, absolutely. Chuko from The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. I think this was either the last movie he did or one of the last movies he did. His final film, he died, he was 98 when he died. This is the last movie that he made. Okay. He was probably 94 in this. He's basically Mr. Burns. <laughs> like, yeah. Old man who sits in the corner that you look at just to see if they're going to like nod and say yes or no. You know, it's the guy who pulls the strings. There's so many people that are like in the background that you, like, you could just sort of give them... Like, they, they're all, they've all proven their worth. Jason Clark is on screen for like two shots. He's in some boardroom scene, and he plays the third brother in Lawless. I was like, oh, great. Like This is cool. Like Jason Clark is going to be in this and maybe he works for Josh Brolin and they're going to team up on Shia or whatever. But no, he's in that one shot or like those three little shots in that one sequence and there he goes. It's not like they cast these people that work in other movies. Like we talk about, uh, like in The Company You Keep, like how you need like these strong character actors to play these roles that are just going to be on screen for one sequence or something. And I feel like they try to do that here and it kind of failed completely you know like with the females you mentioned before like you get those two great actresses but one barely has any lines and the other is only in one scene and they just don't pop as as well i mean carrie mulligan's great and she's not in the movie for the first half and then just sort of like kept in the dark for the second half men and women in this movie but i mean especially the women but like everybody's just like an object to be used considering this movie was on the blacklist it was like one of the like the best scripts that wasn't me that that shocks me i don't know what happened like i feel like everything was sort of in place and then i don't get the sense that would have been like the big short because the big short it tackles a serious matter in a funny way this is just like there's there's not there's no comedy to be had here at all but i feel like this is almost sort of like the big short the big short just played it straight and then like oh let's just like let's just make it a sequel because people aren't going to want to want to see this yeah it's surprising that this was such a sought after screenplay i mean i understand that a script is sort of like this living thing like it's it's always going to change and you know you bring different actors on board and different directors and producers everybody wants to do things with the movie their way and it's never going to be the script exactly it's just crazy to see that the end result isn't even really enjoyable you know like it would be a script that had such high praise and that it could fall apart that the end product could be not so good it's just it's just weird it's just like an anomaly to me <laughs> in some way it's just like boring like i don't know and i don't think it's shia's fault because the one thing that we've seen over and over again is that preparing for these roles or getting into character he's willing to go as far as possible again for this movie he worked extensively with traders and researchers in the finance and economy worlds invested twenty thousand dollars in the stock market was able to turn that into four hundred thousand dollars side note to that story a few of the people who trained him were later arrested for illegal acts of trading. I don't know if it was insider trading or what, but, you know, he learned from the guys who did what they did, you know what I mean? He studied and earned his broker's license. He chose to stay thin for the role because he noticed that many hedge funders were very slight and very skinny. It just seems like he was really dedicated to this. One other thing, the only other thing I read about him sort of preparing for the role is that as he was going around to these Wall Street guys, trying to learn a little bit about the job that he would be doing on screen, he said that like 90% of the people he talked to 
got the job or like got into that line of work because of Gordon Gecko. Huh. Or he said that he would make a deal with them that like if they gave him their time, taught him how to become a believable hedge funder or whatever, he would then in turn introduce him to Michael Douglas. I guess that's sort of the the perks of working alongside Michael Douglas. He <laughs> just takes the by the way, Michael Douglas, you got an hour, I've got like fifty guys that you have to meet <laughs> if you don't if you don't mind. But it is interesting that he does he's on that method path already and he's putting in the work and he's, you know, earning his license and all that stuff like he doesn't have to do that and I'm sure Josh Brolin didn't do that and I doubt Ben Affleck did when he made um, Boiler Room you know it's just cool that he goes the extra mile and it's just a shame that it was kind of a waste this time around I mean it's just it's just a bummer like it's not I don't think it's bad like I think it's well made enough and people are acting well enough it's just I don't know man it treats us like we're dumb it is boring. The other problem is that like the Big Short and the Wolf of Wall Street came out after this. Like I feel like if I saw this before those movies, that I would have learned something from this. You know what I mean? But we've seen I mean the Wolf of Wall Street isn't about the financial collapse, but it's that person it's like it's that persona done the best way it can be done, and then the big short it like took the very complicated matter. It took that this story that's being told in this movie and told it in a better way, an interesting way, with better actors doing more and acting better. Yeah, and I just kind of feel like this movie welshes on its deal. Like, it promises you Gordon Gecko's return, and it's basically about Shia LaBeouf what does he do again? (laughs) It's like how I feel about it. I came to see more Wall Street, and this is not what they deliver you know this is like this is money never sleeps let it they should have just let it been money never sleeps and never done wall street to it it feels like a cash grab or something you know like it's oh we have an opportunity to make uh, a franchise out of wall street of all things i think it's just the hollywood market has been going crazy berserk to get franchises and sequels you know not that sequels are anything new but sequelitis is definitely you know at a fever pitch and in 2010 definitely Wall Street 2, yeah, knock that shit out in under a year. Get it in theaters, you know, write it off if it sucks. Whatever you have to do, like, just make the movie so it's out there. It just became a commodity, and that's unfortunate, especially because of what these movies are sort of about, you know, buying and trading and what things are worth and putting worth and effort into something to make it worth something more and, and it just feels like yeah we just wanted to spit out this product this time instead of, it doesn't have the love and the care that the first one really feels like it had if only someone could bail out this movie <laughs> one thing that I that I love that's super cliche but I think it's really funny that this movie did and it did it so seriously because everything in this movie is so serious toward the end of the movie after Shia learns that Michael Douglas that Gordon Gecko screwed him over Michael Douglas like walks into his office and then Shia says something, the camera pans over to him, and he's sitting on a couch in the dark, and he yes. turns the light on. And, like, that's been done in so many movies, but this movie does it so seriously. Like, this is this foreboding thing. And I just had to laugh. I'm like, I love this because it's so cliche like it's been done i was so befuddled at that moment because it's like shia just flew to london like what to what to talk to convince okay he drops off the sonogram of course yeah he may tries to make a deal and everything and uh, but 
but it just was so awkward and out of place to me. I was like, what? No, there's no, there's like nothing set up before that Shia was sort of like a, a spy or, you know, anything like that, that he followed people around or waited in their apartment or did any kind of sneaking around whatsoever. So that's, that was very funny. Oh man, oh man, oh man. Gordon Gecko didn't seem very surprised to see him there either, as if people surprise him that way all the time, or, or they used to. Maybe it's the prison in him that he's just like I shrugged guess. it off. I honestly have no idea. It's uh, it's a mystery. I don't think I have anything else to say about this movie. I think it's yeah. it's good. I mean, I, I own this now, so I guess you know. Mm-hmm. It's on, my, it's on my shelf. I don't own the first one, but I own this one. I feel like the, the first one's a better movie than this, right? Oh, oh, the, yeah, way better. I mean, the first one still has its problems, but, I mean, it's mostly just due to the way the market's changed, the way business has changed. I mean, it's a great sort of snapshot, time capsule, whatever you want to call it, of the 1980s, of the 85 and all that. I, I feel like it's entertaining, you know, it's high energy. It, it, it kind of does what the big short does in a way, where it takes something that is complex, complex, complicated, most people aren't very interested in, and sort of devises this nice little thriller out of it. And I never felt like I was left in the dust, and I never felt bored. I was very, very into that one. And and unfortunately, this one just, yeah, kind of the complete opposite. Well, the good news is that by getting through this, we're now rewarded with Transformers 2 as our next movie. So, <laughs> oh, God. Hooray! Oh, man. These last three movies are going to just test me so much. This movie cost $70 million to make and only made $52 million domestically. It made 134 worldwide, but... People just did not go see this movie, I guess, and I, I I'm surprised it cost that much money. Like, where the where did the seventy million go? Yeah, because it doesn't especially look that nice either, right? Like to me, it kind of looked like a TV movie almost. The lighting was just very bland, and yeah, there was nothing overtly artistic about it. There were a few shots of the dominoes and the bubbles, and you know, reflection <laughs> reflection of the stock market on people's faces through their computers. But for the most part, it didn't feel cinematic in that respect to me. Oh, like it, oh, 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 I'm sorry. I'm sorry to interrupt, but you reminded me. There's one shot in this movie that I guess must have used all the money because it's so amazingly well done, and I'm being as sarcastic as I possibly can. It's when he's in the car with his mom, when Shia is in the car with Susan Sarandon, and they're driving, and Vanessa Ferlito calls him on the phone, and they take her face oh, bubble, and they put yes. it over Susan Sarandon's face. And I'm just like, why is this a thing? Why is this the way that we're doing this? And then the <laughs> camera cuts to like where they're going, and just her face bubble is just like on the screen. Who thought that was a good idea? Yeah, no, there's some really wacky split-screen editing that reminded me of Ang Lee's Hulk, if you've ever seen that movie. Like, there's that amount of craziness going on with some of the editing here. Like, at one point, there's, like, a shot of them at the gala, and it closes with, like, an old-timey iris that sort of collapses all the way down onto their table. Uh, You know, that kind of fate. (laughs) Like, what was that about? I was like, like, that's only acceptable nowadays in a Woody Allen movie, you know? Yeah. Like, that was not called for. It was very confused. And it's only accepted in Woody Allen movie because he's been doing it since, like, 1970. Yeah, or the movie takes place in the 40s or 30s where yeah. <laughs> they would have done that in the movie. Because, like, oh, God. like There's nothing at that, there's nothing going on on that table. It's just like, alright, this is how we're going to fade out of the scene because... <laughs> yeah, I expected a, a, a straight... star wipe at some point. Oh, you know? <laughs> or barn doors. I wish I made more notes. Like, if I had realized from the beginning 
sort of how like weird the editing and directing styles would have been, I would have only taken notes on that because like there's probably like way more stuff that we're not remembering that just like bizarre choices that this movie made. Yeah, I could think of one. I think it's something that just early on kind of shook me is when he first is walking around with Gordon Gecko. They're on the street and suddenly it cuts to them on the subway and it's just like a very loud and aggressive cut. I was like, whoa, well that's an interesting choice. You could have just shown him walk down and have a conversation on the subway platform. But it's like they're talking about something on the street and they cut to them in the subway continuing the conversation as if they haven't missed a beat or anything. I don't mind when movies do that if they hide it well, but it almost called attention to itself while doing it. I feel like at that time the movie was so excited to be like, can you believe it? Gordon Gecko on the subway? Like, can you believe? Do you have any idea what we're doing? Like, can, like, look look at this brave choice we're making. Like, look how far this guy has fallen. Like, there's no way. And, like, we're also going to, like, reinforce the fact from earlier, like, when he's leaving prison, like, he thinks the limo is for him, but it's really for, like, the guy, who, you know, the black guy, like, the rapper or whatever. And he has to take a taxi. Like, can you believe it? Gordon Gecko, public transportation? Like, no way. Flashes the Metro card and is like, got one of these, kid? And Chad's like, no, I, I drive it to Cotty. Oh my god. This is the second movie, uh, in like the seven or whatever that we've seen where Shy is with a motorcycle, because in Nymphomaniac, it's this whole thing. Like, mm-hmm. he's mm-hmm. the motorcycle guy. That was sort of a... Uh, and I also realized in this movie, we've had a bunch lately, like probably three or four movies at least, where Shia is a dad. Like, it seems like he's sort of oh, too yeah. young to be a dad, but he's a dad in Nymphomaniac. He's a dad in Lawless by the end, right? Yes. So that's three movies. I feel. I, mean, I was just. It's just strange to see you know so like that kind of thing over and over again. I guess. Dude, speaking of strange, how crazy are the end credits? Or like the movie ends and then like there's this extended sequence over the credits about like a year goes by and the kid has his first birthday party and they're all like together again and. Michael Douglas is hitting on Susan Sarandon (laughs) and then it fades to what I assume were going to be used as the opening credits it's like this elaborate like all these coins and dollars falling all over the screen and stuff like it was just so So it just wouldn't stop I was just like when will this end it'll never ever end it'll never end I would have loved to have seen Shia's face while he was watching this one in the theater while he was doing his little marathon I just would have loved to have seen the expressions change well because I think so I I think he started his marathon around noon, which means that we are probably... This actually we should have probably looked at. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So so this movie was started at 4 a.m. Oh, my God. So there's almost no way that he was awake for this, especially because considering Transformers Dark of the Moon, this is something we should have been doing all along. I'll do a rundown here of when things started, and then we'll, we'll use this for the future. Okay. Transformers Dark of the Moon started at 1.30, which is just, oof. Oh, man. And then Wall Street... That's like when you saw it. I know. And then Transformers Revenge of the Fallen started at 6.10. So I'm, I feel like, if you want to sleep, you could have slept from, like, you know, 1.30 to 8, and then started up for Eagle Eye. But wow. The marathon started at noon with Man Down, and then Fury at 1.30, and then Nymphomaniac started at 3.45. Oh, he didn't watch the extended. He only watched the regular Nymphomaniac. So, I mean, oh, what did we do? <laughs> what did we do? We forgot to we check. We spent an extra hour and a half of our life, but it's fine. Then Charlie Countryman at 7.45, and The Company You Keep at 9.30, 
Lawless at 11.30, nice. and Transformers at 1.30, and this movie at 4. God, like, this, I can't imagine. I, yeah, there's, there's no there's way. No, there's nothing interesting to look at. Like, it's just... Yeah, ooh. and I think I told you, I tried to get through both of them last night, and after the first one, I was like, there's no way I'm starting part two. I mean, I'm just not going to start a movie, like, past one in the morning anyway, you know, but if I had, there's no way I would have made it through this movie, you know, through the early hours of the morning. It's impossible. Well, I mean, Shia did it, maybe... I guess we'd have to look up and see if he actually slept through this or not. So the next movie we have is Transformers 2, Transformers Revenge of the Fallen, so that's going to be interesting. But we're still mm. in that heart of the blockbuster yeah. season for Shia, so... It's weird. Like the, I feel like the Transformer movies mark the tail end of his blockbuster tenure, if you were, if you were. because early on, I think it's going to start where he starts showing up in other people's blockbusters, like Will Smith and Keanu as the yep. sidekick, yep. and then he gets his own with uh, Disturbia and Eagle Eye and other movies, and now with... And Transformers 1, and it feels like these movies he's sort of being, not like phased out, but I don't know, it's just like he's being put with actors that are bigger than him, he's not the star anymore, so it is kind of, maybe it does feel like he's somewhat fa- going on to another phase of the blockbuster, but yeah, I, I don't know, I look forward, I like I like going back like this, it's interesting, I look forward to going backwards. So for all things, all his movies, to see the movies that we've already recorded, I just gave a rundown of the start time, so if any of those sound interesting to you, you haven't listened to them yet, go to cageclub.me or facebook.com slash cageclub. You can listen to them all on there, or you can subscribe on iTunes to get them all delivered to your phone or whatever each morning. I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I'm Mike Manzi. And we'll see you next time on All His Movies. I've got an illness.